You're listening to a message from Doxa Church on the book of Daniel, which we believe has more relevance for the church than ever before, as Christians face the challenge to not just survive, but thrive as God's people in a changing world. For more resources, visit doxa-church.com. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And heaven, I'm sorry, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as he looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one. Before which of three the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. In my house, we have a rule that you can't listen to Christmas music until after Thanksgiving. Yeah. Welcome uh, to Doxa. My name is Justin, and uh, it's good to be here with you. We are in Daniel chapter 7 this morning, and, uh, and things are going to get weird. So uh, as, as Amy uh, read just a moment ago, we are into the second half of Daniel, uh, which is the apocalyptic uh, half of the book. So the first half, first six chapters are kind of the Sunday school stories that you've possibly heard growing up, depending on your background. Uh, but we heard about Daniel in the lion's den and the handwriting on the wall and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, and the fiery furnace and all the, you know, all the stories that you can picture with felt, you know, being told and, you know, the, the, the fire and felt and all that kind of stuff that uh, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, then you didn't grow up in Sunday school and that's about all you missed is the felt. Uh, so, uh, we are transitioning from that uh, to the second half of the book, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, is all kind of these apocalyptic visions uh, that God gave Daniel. So if you're here, you're new, and uh, maybe you're not a Christian, and you thought, man, Christians, they just believe weird stuff, uh, you have no idea. <laughs> uh, it gets super weird. And, uh, and, and so we want to talk a little bit about that uh, this morning. Um, I, I want to mention as well that these, uh, these last chapters are not chronological. So uh, 
the first six chapters were all chronological, and now these last six kind of are peppered throughout the, the narrative part we already read. So in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, um, if you remember chapter 5, uh, the story of the handwriting on the wall was the story of the final day of Bal- Belshazzar's uh, reign. So we're, we're backing up into between chapter 4 and chapter 5 uh, for this vision. Okay, so just to give a little bit of chronological uh, context and the rest of the chapters, rest of these visions are, are kind of similar. They're, they're peppered in there. Um, so let's talk about apocalyptic literature for a second because not a lot of us read truly apocalyptic, like ancient Near Eastern apocalyptic literature, right? We read some of this stuff and especially if you're a Christian, you grew up in the church uh, and you're maybe my age or a little older, uh, you grew up with uh, some, some version of like end times kind of theology. So uh, if you're like me, you were a disciple of Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins and may or may not have stood in line at midnight to get the newest release of the Left Behind series. I can neither confirm nor deny. Uh, But that, you know, potentially has shaped your understanding of end times and all that. Here's what I want to say about apocalyptic literature like this. The primary point of apocalyptic literature is not to tell the future specifically. It's not. And, And it really never has been, right? So apocalypse literally means unveiling. Okay, it means unveiling or unmasking. And the role of apocalyptic literature in the Bible and in all of really ancient Near Eastern uh, literature is to unveil not something specific about the future, but something truer or more real or something deeper than what we can see on its plain face. Okay? And we know that for a couple of reasons. One, apocalyptic literature is by nature obscure. Right, So we read this, this section and kind of have some idea, and, and we'll see in the interpretation, that what it's saying is these four beasts are four kingdoms that will rule over the earth. But God doesn't give Daniel dates. He doesn't give Daniel names. He doesn't give Daniel like specifics about how it's all going to go down. He doesn't give me that. It's very obscure. The, the details are obscured, and I think they're obscured on purpose. Right? Because the, the idea isn't to know exactly how the future is going to play out. That God is revealing something or unmasking something for Daniel so that he can see through what is kind of on its plain face to something deeper and truer. Okay, So that's what apocalyptic literature does. It's true for Daniel. It's true for the book of Revelation. That the idea is that God's going, here, I want to give you a peek behind the curtain to see what's actually going on. So you can kind of, if you can picture Wizard of Oz and Toto pulling back the curtain to see the the little dude pulling the levers, that's what's going on here in a very real way. Okay? Never thought of Wizard of Oz as apocalyptic? You do now. Okay? Who's Dorothy? She's the Antichrist. I just figured it out. Okay. So, if, if God is trying to unveil the truth behind what's going on in the world, what is he unveiling? Three things. One, that kingdoms will come and go. That kingdoms will come and go. That that is the natural order of things and nothing's going to change now. God is coming to Daniel in this moment of transition. He came to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, who started as a super bad guy, ended as maybe a believer in God, not totally clear, but certainly had this like arc to his life. And 
Daniel had found quite a bit of prosperity under Nebuchadnezzar. He'd risen up to like third in command in all of Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. Now Nebuchadnezzar dies, gets replaced by Belshazzar. We're one year in and we're already figuring out Belshazzar's not a good dude. Okay, um, he's going to be much harsher on Israel, much more arrogant, and and never comes around uh, to worship God. Right, so already there's some discomfort and some questions, and probably at some level Daniel going, God, what is going on? Like, what are you going to do? I thought by now we would be back in Jerusalem, that we wouldn't be in exile anymore. So God comes to Daniel and reveals, like, listen, you got this kingdom, Babylon, and they're going to pass away, and there's going to be another kingdom, the Medes and the Persians, and there's going to be another kingdom, the Greeks, and then there's going to be a fourth kingdom. Okay, there's just kingdom after kingdom after kingdom after kingdom, and that's the way this thing goes. And so there's this, there's this sense for Daniel to go, don't, don't just kind of be anxiously waiting and biding your time for the good kingdom to finally come, the good king who's finally going to make it okay. And don't be uh, upset or fearful when a new kingdom comes because God's going, they're just going to keep coming one after another, after another, after another. Second thing, not only will kingdoms come and go, but all kingdoms of the world are fundamentally the same. There's probably the idea that Daniel had gotten pretty comfortable under Nebuchadnezzar and started to think, well, maybe this isn't so bad. Maybe the Israelites can survive and thrive in Babylon. Maybe we can't. But now Belshazzar's come, and now all of that's in question again. And not long from now, Belshazzar's going to go away. Babylon's going to be overthrown. And the Medes and the Persians are going to show up. Right? And so the, that question is going to be a perpetual question of like, what's going to come next? Is the next one going to be better? Is the next one going to be worse? And God reveals to Daniel, listen, all these kingdoms are basically the same. Some are going to be harsher in some areas and easier in others. There's going to be some opportunities in one and less opportunity in another. But they're all fundamentally not my kingdom. And Sinclair Ferguson, a famous kind of writer, pastor, says this about that idea. He says, the overarching concern of this chapter is to focus our attention on the age-long conflict between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. Just when Daniel is anticipating the deliverance of the kingdom of God from its oppression in the form of the return from exile, he learns an important lesson. This conflict is endemic to world history until the end. Rather than decrease, it will be perpetuated until it reaches its zenith in the ferocious blasphemies of the little horn, which we read about in the end of verse 8. Okay? So there's going to be kingdom after kingdom after kingdom, and they're all fundamentally the same in that they're not the kingdom of God. So they're based on ideas about power and rule and dominion as domination and subjugation and all kinds of ideas that are not the kingdom of God. So it, just because one king is going away and the next one's coming, don't think that it's going to be fundamentally different. Third, that God is sovereign over all of it. That kingdoms will come and go, that they are not fundamentally different from one another, and that God is sovereign over all of it. And that's where we pick up in verse 9. Before we get into verse 9, I, I want you to picture the rest of this passage in a certain way. Most of the commentators would say that what Daniel is seeing is kind of all of this happening at the same time. There's not a lot of kind of timing language in the vision. So the best way to understand this is through like a split screen. Okay, so think about it this way. Those first eight verses are happening kind of at the bottom of your screen. This is what's happening on earth. 
right? And now like you're watching a movie and you see kind of a split screen of two things that are happening at the same time. So verses one through eight are what's happening on earth, this kingdom after kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. And this nine through kind of the rest of the chapter is what's happening in heaven. Okay. And they're happening at the same time. That's how I want to picture it. So starting in verse nine, he says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Okay, so here's, here's what we're picturing. At the bottom, we see these crazy animals coming out of the sea, and then we'll find out they represent these various kingdoms. And then at the very same time, as all of this chaos and and suffering and pain, all this stuff is happening up here, God is in heaven sitting in judgment. So the Ancient of Days is for us to picture God the Father in heaven sitting on a throne as as in a courtroom in judgment over what's happening on earth. So this is happening at the same time. It says, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. This is the last beast he's talking about, the fourth one. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So as this is all playing out, God sovereign over all judges what's happening on earth and the judgment is death for the fourth beast, the final kingdom. That's that's this kind of unique, extra crazy, metallic monster kind of animal, right? So God, in his sovereign judgment, says, no, you're coming to an end, kills the beast. 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now, this is a great example of the role that apocalypse plays, right? So as Daniel is reading this part, he sees, or seeing this part, he goes, one like a son of man, which literally just means a human, a guy that looked like a guy right? Comes out of the heavens, is presented before the ancient of days, and then to that man is given this kingdom that's an everlasting kingdom that has dominion over the whole earth, right? Now, for us, being thousands of years later, having had the Bible, who do we think, who do we know is the son of man in this chapter? That's, that's, I mean, that's a safe answer, right? We're in church. Yeah, Jesus, more often than any other title, especially in the book of Matthew, calls himself the son of man, a direct allusion back to Daniel chapter seven. So as Daniel sees this vision play out, the chaos on earth, this sovereignty and courtroom situation going on in heaven, he sees this man come before the ancient of days, gives him power and dominion and a kingdom that lasts forever. Daniel has no idea that that's Jesus and no way to know. And if God wanted Daniel to know that this guy, Jesus is going to show up, it's going to be, you know, at this time in this place, he would have told him, but he doesn't. He simply unveils the fact that what's happening here on earth with chaos and destruction and oppression and slavery and all this madness, 
sits under the sovereign rule of God, the ancient of days, and will one day be given over to one like a son of man to rule his kingdom forever. That's what Daniel sees. Does that bring him great peace? It does not. Verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with his feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions." As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So this angel or whatever is standing in this vision and, and it's kind of an amazing, if you kind of think about this, like Daniel in his vision, in his dream, walked over to a dude and asked him like, what is going on? And this angel described, like interpreted the whole dream and then busts in verse 23, kind of busts into like a poem song thing. Uh, you can tell like when the, when in your Bibles, when it's kind of broken up this way, that something's going on in the text that suggests that it's something different, right? So he says, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the 10 horns, out of this kingdom, 10 kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the most high and shall wear out the saints of the most high and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now, here's what's interesting about the fourth beast. Most commentators and historians can now look back on this dream vision and go, oh, okay, well, it's pretty clear, like, who this is talking about. So the first beast is the Babylonian Empire. The second beast is the Medo-Persian Empire. The third beast is the Greek Empire. And then the fourth beast is where people get a little sideways. Some people think it was Rome and that that was the, the fourth beast that's just kind of this extra crazy beast and that that's because that's when Jesus came and maybe that's true. But then they get hung up like, well, there's, but there's 10 horns and there weren't 10 Roman kings and I think they missed the point, but they, they think it's Rome. And then a whole bunch of other people think that the fourth beast is actually some kind of future kingdom that's end times related, that that final horn is the antichrist and there's all kinds of theories and charts and YouTube videos that, Man, go to town on it. I mean, you waste your life watching crazy dudes in the South talk about uh, who they think the Antichrist is. But I don't recommend it. It's not the point. It's never been the point. 
The, the point is, there's something going to happen in the future. There's going to be kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. One of those kingdoms is going to be extra crazy. They're going to wear out the saints. They're going to try to change the laws and the times, whatever that means. But then eventually, verse 27, or 26, but the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints most high. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey them. That's the end. That there's going to be kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. They're not going to be fundamentally different. So don't get too high and don't get too low. Don't put too much hope in the next kingdom and don't get too distraught when the next kingdom isn't your chosen kingdom. Because all these kingdoms are fundamentally the same. They think about power the same. They think about domination the same. They think about how they're going to rise and what, they're gonna, what they got to do. And it's zero sum kind of power. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. They're not fundamentally different. They're all, in God's words, beasts, these kingdoms. But there will eventually come a kingdom that will be the kingdom forever. That one like the Son of Man will come one day and establish this eternal kingdom. It reminds me a lot of Psalm 2, which I want to turn there real quick. If you can in your Bibles, I just want to read it for you. Psalm 2 is one of my favorite psalms because it's the closest thing the Bible comes to, to smack talk. And I kind of appreciate that. So Psalm 2, God says through David, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In other words, plot all you want. Grasp for power all you want, kings and kingdoms. But I have already chosen the king. And that king will reign and he will rule. And there is nothing you can do about it. And your petty squabbles for power are laughed at in the heavenlies as God sovereignly sits in judgment over what goes on down here. And that's good news. Because for me, I see this and go, man, it's crazy out there. What is happening out there? So I think for Daniel too, God's going, listen, I, I know it's uncertain. I know you've been enslaved and I know now power is changing and more power is going to change. But know that all the while this is happening, so too is this, that God sits in sovereign judgment over it all and one day will send his son to reclaim the throne. But it gets better because I want you to notice something that's really cool. In verse 14, 
It says, and to him, Jesus, was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all people's nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. But then go to verse 27. That same language And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. What what is God saying to Daniel here? Not only have I already chosen my king, already do we know who the king is eventually going to be in this everlasting kingdom full of mercy and grace and all these great things, like this amazing everlasting kingdom, but you too who have been oppressed by these lesser kings, by these worldly kings, you too will reign and rule with him because in his victory is your victory, in his power is your power, that God God is saying here in Daniel 7, the way I set things up to be in Genesis chapter 1, where God gave dominion to Adam and Eve to rule and to reign and protect and cultivate his creation, will one day be restored to its rightful place with humanity. That we will not only serve the king, but we will rule and reign and have dominion ourselves. Paul picks up this theme in Ephesians 2. In this kind of famous like salvation passage, he says this, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, right? So all this salvation language, and raised us up with him And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Our future is tied up with Jesus' future. His reign is our reign. His future is our future. His present is our present. Because see, I noticed something. I was not an English major in college at all. But I noticed that there is a certain tense that this is written in Ephesians 2. Which tense is it? Y'all weren't English majors either, apparently. Past. Past tense. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. What's that mean? It's done done. This is not just a future hope like, gosh, I hope one day this will happen. No, it's done. It's secure. The victory has been won. The battle is over. On the cross, Jesus defeated Satan's sin and death. His victory is sealed. We're just playing out the string now before he sits on his throne. Already our futures are tied up with him in heaven. We have already in a very real but non-physical sense been seated with him in the heavenly places. Is that good news? Because when we see this craziness, God wants us to see this security at the same time. That as, as painful and backwards and oppressive and confusing and chaotic as the kingdoms of this world can be. 
that we would, through the eyes of faith, be able to see that God is sovereign over all of it, that he sits in judgment over all of it, that the victory has already been won, and it's only a matter of time before the king, the rightful true king, sits on his throne, the throne that will be an everlasting And that we will reign and rule with him even though we so often feel disempowered or oppressed and without the ability to reign and rule, cultivate and have dominion that we were created for, that it will be restored to us and that we will reign with him. And that's good news. That's really good news. So what does this mean now? Because God gave this word to Daniel long before any of this was ever going to take place. God gave this word to Daniel before, he, before the Son of Man would come. He never saw Jesus. He never saw the church. He never saw any of this. So if God's going to give this, this vision to Daniel and then by extension to us, like what, what does that mean for us? I've got three things because I'm a preacher. One, if God is sovereign, there is no need to grasp for lesser power. If God is sovereign, there is no need to grasp for lesser power. The temptation is and will be to look for lesser powers to protect and provide for us. That as we see the chaos that's happening here, and as we, we, we feel like and we, we, we think we see that we are an ever-increasing minority in our culture, that as this continues to be crazy, that there will be a temptation in us, that we will feel the need for protection, that we will feel the need for provision, and that we will grasp at lesser powers to give us what we desire. We will look to strong men, strong women, to give us a sense of comfort, to assure us that it's going to be okay. And it will tempt us to, because anyone that is not God is a lesser power, is a lesser good. They're humans, ultimately, and we will look to those humans to provide for us where only God can provide for us, true protection, true provision. And so we will look at them and go, okay, I I know that this is all bad and this is not of God's kingdom whatsoever, but they can provide this for us and they can give me this protection and we can maintain this power. And I know this is ugly and despicable, but I can kind of turn a blind eye to that because they offer me this and this makes me feel secure. It makes me feel like maybe we still have some power here at this level. That's idolatry. It's only idolatry. To think that something down here can provide for us the sense of safety and security, protection and provision that we need and long for, but can actually only be given by God up here. And so God pulls back the veil in this moment of uncertainty for Daniel, pulls back the veil and goes, listen, this world is chaos and it's always gonna be chaos. It's always been chaos since Genesis three. It's been bad. The next guy's not gonna be any worse than, than this guy. It's not gonna be any bad. It's just, it's just the same stuff over and over. You have to be able to see what's happening at the same time. 
because if you don't see this and all you see is this, then you will be tempted to grasp at whatever little lesser power you could possibly find in this world to give you what you think you need. Daniel in verse 28, the last verse of chapter seven says, here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. See, Daniel had learned to live peacefully in Babylon. He'd actually acquired quite a bit of power and influence. He was probably fairly wealthy. He was doing all right in Babylon, especially under Nebuchadnezzar. And so he, he's going to be uh, disincentivized to want to see change because he'd kind of grabbed this modicum of power and security and, and anything that's not that, anything that's new is uncertain and it might be less power, it might be less security, it might be less influence, you just never know. And so you tend to cling to, even in the face of, uh, of real evil, like pretty obvious evil, you tend to cling to what you know, to grasp onto this some sense of security and, and begin to give up your convictions for it. And so God comes to him and goes, listen, you, you might think Nebuchadnezzar's not a bad guy and Babylon's not that bad a place, but let me pull back the curtain and show you what they really are. And that your hope, that your sense of prosperity, that your sense of security was misplaced. That the only reason you experience any kind of security and safety here is because of who I am up here. I can identify with Daniel's fear. I, I look at stuff that's going on here around the world and go, man, this is crazy. And, and recently I, I made the honestly life-changing and, and maybe drastic decision to get off Twitter. And I know, and uh, it's been six weeks now and, and I, I have so much less anxiety than I had before. Because I just, I, I can't hear all the screaming anymore. And I, you know, I, I look at this and I, I was thinking about the strongman idea that we grasp for strongmen who will, who will kind of tell us it's going to be okay and we think have the power to actually make it okay. And I, I thought, you know, I don't know that I grasp for strongmen as much as I grasp for smart men, smart women. People who I think got it figured out and just so happened to agree with me, but that's neither here nor there that can tell me as I listen, I follow about 20 people on Twitter and they all tell me, yes, Justin, it's just as crazy as you think it is. And, and I find a, a sense of solace and security in that. I'm looking here for what can only be found here. Number two, if God is sovereign, we should look into our suffering for the sanctifying hand of God. If God is sovereign, we should look into our suffering for the sanctifying hand of God. Um, it seems as if um, most of the time when we experience suffering or chaos or all, all, all that is this down here, that we often uh, cry out, uh, but we cry out up to say, why God, why would you allow this? Or we cry out this way in blame and go, well, these people, why did these people make this happen? Why, why did that guy do this to me? But see, I, I think moments like this, if God is sovereign over all of this, are moments for us to look in and go, why, why God? All suffering 
is the result of sin. All suffering is a result of sin. Some of it, our sin. We suffer because of choices we made. Some of it, other people's sin. We suffer because they are sinning against us. Some of it is is systemic sin, the stacking of sin that creates sinful systems that we live within. And some of it, like sickness, is just simply the presence of sin in the world has made possible things like cancer and et cetera, et cetera. So on the one hand, we go, okay, all, all suffering is sin, at some, in, is a result of sin in some sense. And what we also know about God is that God desires that we would know him more and more and more, that we would in fact love him more and more and more, and that God is pursuing us, pursuing that for us. That he is not simply going, I'm great, come get me, come find your way to the top of the mountain. That's not what the Christian faith believes. It's what just about every other faith believes that there is some ideal and that your job is to find your way up to the mountain to that ideal. That's where Christianity is fundamentally different to all other faiths because we believe God came off the mountain and went, hey, this is me. I'm coming to you. I want you to know me. I want you to love me. And so I'm going to be with you. I'm going to demonstrate my loveliness to you and be in relationship with you. So we know these two things. One, suffering is always the result of sin. And two, God is desiring that we would grow in our knowledge and love of him. He is drawing us deeper to him. So when we experience all of the pain of this, the the response should not be why or blame, but it should be, okay, God, what's, what, what part of the suffering am I complicit in? How have I contributed to this mess? What am I culpable for? How, what do I need to repent of and, and own in this? And then two, very quickly go, okay, and God, how are you desiring to use this to draw me to yourself? How are you identifying things that I have over cared for, that I have overvalued or undervalued, and you're exposing that to me so that I might turn to you who can provide for me everything that I need. So very specifically, how have you exposed the actual weakness of my strong man, the one that I have given so much of my life to, but then they lost the election or they are not, maybe they won and they're not doing their part or whatever, whatever it is, like whatever that political or cultural strong man that we've gone, this person or this idea can give me what I wanted. And then ultimately they fail and you go, what, how could that happen? We go, okay, well, one, I have over depended on that person or that system or that idea. And two, God, I ought to know that only you can provide that thing for me. If God is sovereign, we should look into our suffering for the sanctifying hand of God. And because I have a quota to reach, um, C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain (laughs) says um, very famously, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It feels like a megaphone right now to rouse us, to remind us what it is we have put our trust in and its ultimate weakness to deliver on what it's promised. Number three, if God is sovereign, we can have the peace that surpasses understanding. Paul in Philippians chapter four says, the Lord is at hand. 
The Lord is at hand. That's the truth statement. And because the Lord is at hand, he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul promises a kind of peace that makes zero sense. Makes no sense. A kind of peace that would allow us to look at the very real crazy of this world and go, it's going to be okay. Why? The only way we can look at this and go, it's going to be all right, is if we can also see this at the same time. We have to have the eyes of faith to see God revealing the truth that this is kind of always what it's always been and this God is sovereign as he has always been and he will one day send his son to rule and reign and we will reign and rule with him. It's the only way that we can see this world and go, it's going to be all right. Because honestly, if all you can see is this, you should be freaking out. You absolutely should be freaking out. If this is all you can see, you just look around the world and see what's happening and the pain and the suffering and the oppression and the dehumanizing of, of people around the globe, you should absolutely be freaking out. There is only one way that we can have a kind of peace that passes all understanding that makes no sense. And is if we can see as in a split screen, both the real and the truly real. Paul David Tripp wrote a devotional um, that has been fantastic. I, I'm, I'm reading through it every morning and, and uh, just a couple of days he wrote this. I want to read it for you. He says, there simply is no panic in heaven. God is never anxious. There is no confusion in the Trinity. God never wrings his hands and wishes he had made a better choice. God never worries about what is going to happen next or stresses over how things are going to turn out. God is never surprised or caught up short. He is never in a situation that overwhelms him. God never feels needy or unprepared. God never regrets that he did not do better. God never fails at a task. He never makes promises that he cannot keep. He never forgets what he said or wants to do next. God never contradicts himself or fails to be exactly who he said he was. He is all powerful, absolutely perfect in every way, faithful to every word, sovereign over all that is, the definition of love, and he is righteous, just, tender, and patient all at the same time. He is not dismayed or distracted by our panic and our questions. No, the sovereign move of his grace marches on. Man, that's good news. Because I am the opposite of those things. I, whenever I watch uh, scary movies with my kids, and by scary movies with my kids, I mean Beauty and the Beast. Um, you know, inevitably, there's a, a part in the movie that, you know, is scary. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're sitting on the couch, and, uh, and my kids, especially my girls, will come and sit next to me at the scary parts and, and want me to put my arms around them. And it strikes me, that them coming and sitting with me makes them feel better and more secure, makes them feel protected. Even though them sitting with me doesn't change anything about that scary thing, about that, the reality of that thing. Them sitting next to me doesn't make the wolves run away. It doesn't make 
beast look less like a beast. Doesn't change any of the reality, but being with me and near me with my arms around them changes their experience of reality. That's the invitation of our faith. That's the invitation of God. This is real and it hurts and it's scary and it's chaotic and there's a lot of suffering and it's all bad. And being a Christian doesn't change any of that. What it does is allows us to be with the one who is sovereign over all. It allows us to see the big picture and to go, this, isn't, this is true, but it's not the only truth. This is real, but it's not the only thing that's real. This is scary, but not when I am with my heavenly father, the ancient of days who sits in judgment over all of these things. Not when I am with the son who will one day come and rule and reign and have dominion over all the earth and his dominion, his kingdom will be one of mercy and grace and compassion and love. That doesn't change this for now. We still face all of the destruction that our world has wrought. We, we face that every single day. But to know that God is sovereign over and to be with him, to experience his victory, and to know that one day we will experience ultimately his victory and see that this whole world will be remade in his image. That and only that can give us a peace that makes no sense. And it strikes me as we finish that that victory was not won by fighting fire with fire. Jesus didn't win the victory of his eternal kingdom by matching the domination, the oppression, the strength, the power of this world. Jesus won the victory through humble sacrifice, through laying down his life, by claiming a power that is unlike any other worldly power. And as we, as Christians, have to navigate this world, the temptation will be to navigate the world by playing by the world's rules when it comes to power. That's not how Jesus did it. That's not how he won his victory. That's not how we are secure in the heavenlies with him. He won the victory here by going, the way you're thinking about this is all wrong. The way up is down. The way to power is weakness. The way to glory is through humility. That's the way God designed this world to be. The world around us has turned that 180 degrees, skewed and perverted that idea so that power equals domination. That if I gain power, that means someone else has to suffer. And that is not the way God made it to be. And it is not the way that God's kingdom will be. And so as we go out these doors, those of us who profess Christ, I pray that not only do we see this weak world for what it is, that we see the true power for what it is, but that we respond to this world by the values of this. That we exist in these kingdoms, bearing witness to the values of this kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus.
Thankful seems like too small a word for the victory you've won, for the world you've offered to us. Lord, you have given us an opportunity to know you. You pursue us. You love us. You desire that we would be with you, that we would love you, because that is our greatest good and our greatest end. But God, the world around us is uh, full of danger. It is terrifying. It is fraught. Lord, I pray that you would give us the eyes to see that the power that we see around us is not true power, that it is fragile, that it has been in someone else's hands recently and will again be in someone else's hands in the future. That worldly power is passed from person to person, idea to idea, government to government, but that your kingdom reigns and that you will one day come again. Lord, we find great peace in that. I pray that we would cling to that and that we would tell each other that story over and over when we are afraid that we would remind each other, bear witness to one another to say this, is, this world is not what it seems. It seems scarier than it is. They seem more powerful than they are. God alone sits in judgment. Give us hope, Lord. May we see this world and yours the way it truly is. In Christ's name we pray, amen.